Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, church. My name is Michael. I serve as one of the elders here at Harvest KL. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Whether you've been here a long time or this is your first time, I'm glad you're here. Uh, As a church, we've been walking through the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, roughly in the middle of the Bible. Uh, We are this morning going to be in chapter 35. We have been working our way through Isaiah for a while now. So chapter 35 means it's been a number of chapters already. And when we do go through it chapter by chapter, we can, it can be easy to lose the big picture. Isaiah is gradually building an argument for his readers, like a clever lawyer. His argument is this, that God's people have gone wrong, way wrong. Not only that, but the whole world has done the same. But God's people have less excuse Um, that God preserved his people through so many difficulties. After famine in their own land and 400 years of cruel slavery in the land of Egypt, God redeemed them out of slavery. And then in the decades of wilderness, God provided food and water when they needed it. And protection when threat came upon them. When they finally settled in the land and promised to them, God repeatedly came to their aid when other nations attacked. And sadly, each step of the way, God's people would turn away. God sought to be their God, and the people continuously walked away from God. They took up idols instead uh, of remaining loyal to God, uh, who was always loyal to them. They lived disobediently, going against the commands of God. And this happened again and again and again. God would pursue a relationship with his people and they would perpetually run away and then complain that God does not hear them. As a result, society by Isaiah's time is in bad shape. And this is what Isaiah is trying to point out. Things are not all right. There is oppression. There is corruption. There is greed, there is pride, there is idolatry, 
and the list could go on. Isaiah is calling attention to the fact that their rebellion and their sin cannot stand in God's kingdom. And so this is what Isaiah 1 through 12 highlights, that God's people are not all right. And then in chapters 13 to 23, we see that the nations all stand guilty before God. Then in chapters 24 to 27, it becomes clear that all the world will be judged by a holy God. Then in these chapters, uh, 828 to 35, we get a picture that God will use other nations as a source of judgment on Israel, as well as on other nations. All of this sounds like hard news. But Isaiah weaves in another story through all of this, all the way through these chapters. Since chapter 1, Isaiah has been calling attention to the God who saves. And that God is going to renew everything. Chapters 34 and 35, we went through 34 last week, uh, and then 35 this week. They seem to summarize these two major themes. They are right in the middle of this amazing book. And last week, when we looked at chapter 34, it summarized our reality before God. And it, it was harsh news. It was hard news to hear. But the reason for this doom and gloom, it's not because God relishes in our demise or that he doesn't care. Actually, it's the opposite. It's precisely because he does care so deeply that he gives us this strong warning. So now we come to chapter 35. And this recaps the good news that God is working on something amazing that goes beyond our imaginations, that God will establish Zion and it will be good, truly good. So this chapter reminds us what God will do to establish Zion, a work of transformation. But there is something else that I want us to think about this morning. God's big work of transformation only works if he does a work of transformation in your heart. In other words, we want to notice and marvel at what God will do in the big picture, bringing people to a renewed Zion. But we also want to see ourselves in this story. Are you growing or are you stagnant? God wants you to see him, hear from him, trust him and grow in him. This morning, we'll walk through this in three phases. Drought in land and soul, dealing with our anxieties and fears, and delivered by our Redeemer. Drought in land and soul. I'm going to read these opening three verses of the chapter. 
The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, the strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. This chapter opens with good news right out the gate, right from the beginning. The wilderness and the desert becomes a place of growth and flourishing, so much so that the land is rejoicing. When people sinned, it even changed the land. Genesis 3 describes part of the curse is a harder land. Leviticus 18 warns us that when people engage in sinful acts, that the land will vomit them out. Quite strong imagery. We read earlier in Romans 8, I'm going to reread chapter uh, verses 20 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, all of creation is impacted by human sin. And so while this passage describes the transformation of a desolate land, we also see that the root of the problem is the human heart. It describes the glory of Lebanon, and that refers to the majestic cedars that they are known for. It's even on their flag, the Lebanese flag. Carmel, literally meaning garden land, was a heavily wooded place. Again, we see flourishing landscape. It's known in the Bible uh, in 1 Kings 18 as the place where Elijah demonstrated God's power over the God of Jezebel, Baal. He created a contest, you might remember. Each would set up an altar and call each God to respond with fire to receive the burnt offering. The prophets of Baal tried and tried and failed. Elijah, on the other hand, asked for water to be poured over the altar. Began, I think, four times. So much so that there was a trench of water around it. And then Elijah said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire consumed the altar. Then the people began to call out to God. The majesty of Carmel draws on this imagery, remembering the glory of God. We can see the contrast, the, the chapter last week, chapter 34, when Edom is judged, her land becomes desolate. 
from generation to generation. See, ever since the beginning, sin has been a carrier of death. Sin is destructive. The land becomes desolate. Here in chapter 35, we begin in a desolate land that suddenly sees new life emerge. The same thing happens in our hearts. Sin deadens us. When we live according to our own desires and passions, we have within us no possibility of spiritual growth. Some of you might be wondering, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I don't see any growth. Or I don't experience the presence of God. And so let me just suggest that maybe the reason is you have not let go of your sin. The first step towards intimacy with God is to let go of all that is ungodly in our lives. For some, that may be actual idols. Others, it may be sexual sin or greed. For others, it might be something that is maybe less visible, but has just as much a stranglehold, pride, jealousy, unforgiveness towards another. The Christian must regularly examine his or her own heart and repent. We must give God space to work in our hearts. There are many who call themselves Christians and yet remain far from God. Second part, dealing with our anxieties and fears. Again, I'll read these verses, verses four through seven. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become weeds and rushes. Um, not long after Karen and I got married, we lived in a very small one-bedroom apartment at the graduate school that we were attending at the time in California. And we went to Ikea, or Ikea, whatever you know it as. I was speaking American just then. Um, and we there was like this area rug for $15. $15. This is how Ikea gets you. Um, and so we, we bought the rug. Actually, we bought the rug and then realized it won't fit in our car. <laughs> and so it was like sticking out of our car as we drove home. Thankfully, we made it back. 
But then you get a rug in your small apartment and you, we didn't have a way to clean it. And so we needed a vacuum cleaner, but it was just one smallish rug. And so we wanted something just simple, cheap vacuum cleaner. And so we went to a department store called Sears, which is now a relic of the past. Um, and to look shop for a vacuum cleaner. And so we came into the, the department store, the section with the vacuums and they had a great selection. We began to look around and then a saleswoman came over to us and began to ask what we were looking for. And we described our situation and that we just wanted something small, simple, cheap. And she began with quite great alarm in her voice to tell us about the dangers of dust mites. And that dust mites were these dastardly little devils that were going to destroy our lives. And so she, she taught, I mean, and I don't think like sometimes you get a sense that this is a sales pitch. She just wants to sell us the more expensive thing. I think in her, for her, she seemed quite genuine. She really seemed concerned about our encounter with dust mites. Um, there was real fear in her for what might happen to us. And so she physically blocked us from getting over to the cheaper vacuums. We could not get there. We finally gave up and went to another part of the store. And then we snuck back in when she was with other customers and bought a cheap vacuum cleaner. That's a humorous way to highlight the fact that we let fears, anxiety, consume us, control us. This message is for any with an anxious heart. If that is you, then this is for you. If you find yourself stressed because of your worry or not sleeping because you are anxious, or obsessing over life issues. This is really important for us. The world feeds our anxiety. Exams are so stressful they can induce health problems for some kids. Work performance can be a heavy burden for others. The news is constantly adding to it. Don't eat this thing. This other thing will give you cancer. Your bank account might be hacked. Your phone might be hacked. Your Facebook might be hacked. All kinds of things just continue to feed fear and anxiety. And it builds and it builds. And we lose perspective. We, we begin to think that dust mites might truly be the most destructive thing in the universe. Isaiah does not share this about God just as theory. You may remember back in Isaiah chapter 6, he was given a vision of God in his glory. God's glory is so incredible and so overwhelming that Isaiah himself is immediately humbled. He says this in, in chapter 6, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. Isaiah had confidence in God because he had encountered God. There is no comparison in all of the earth. And so we are told in this passage to behold our God and to do so is to be truly changed by him. When you do so, that means that anxieties and fears do retreat because we can have such confidence in the king, the Lord of hosts. At the same time, Isaiah is told that his job would be a hard one, that people would neither hear his message nor perceive it. But here, when God gathers those who have truly known God, they are no longer deaf or blind. And so we see in this passage that the deaf hear and the blind see. The lame leap like deer. When we know that God has fully taken care of the future, we can easily live in the present without fear or anxiety. Does anxiety control you? Does fear consume you? Will you trust God with all that burdens you? Thirdly, delivered by our Redeemer. I'm going to try an experiment, and we'll see if it fails miserably. But I'm going to ask that we all read the, these verses together, okay? So I will begin, and we'll just read all the way through 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall the, any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Emerging in this renewed land is a highway called the <clears throat> way of holiness. And it is a safe highway. A highway with no problems along the way. But the unclean cannot go on this path. It is only for the redeemed, for those ransomed by the Lord. We talked about sin that occupies our hearts, and we talked about fears that control our hearts. And we're tempted to try and address these things on our own. More discipline, more therapy, read books, self-scolding. These things might work for a little while, but they will not bring real transformation. They will not get you on the way of holiness. 
at the risk of oversimplifying things, we are either ruled by sin or we have been redeemed by God. When we started talking, or when we started, we talked about Israel's slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They were not able to free themselves from slavery. The Bible speaks of sin in the same way, that we must be delivered from bondage to sin. We must be redeemed. In Egypt, the Pharaoh would not let the Hebrew people go, even after plague after plague. And so God instructed each family in, in slavery to sacrifice a lamb and mark their door with blood. Death visited Egypt and took the firstborn of everyone except for those with blood from the sacrificial lamb covering the door. It would pass over those, those homes. Although this act redeemed the people from Egypt, it did not redeem them from sin. This would happen many centuries later when Jesus was born. Jesus came as a ransom for us. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus began his time of ministry, we can see in the Gospel of John that the prophet by the name of John the Baptist, he marveled, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus gave his blood so that death would pass over those marked by his blood. In this case, it would not be just, it could not be just the blood of a sheep. It had to be one who was truly righteous. Jesus was the only one worthy of the way of holiness on his own. But he did not come to be served. Rather, he came to give his life so that many might have life. For those who place their lives in Jesus, he will save you. Not only are you rescued, but being liberated from bondage means gladness and joy. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sometimes we have sought to do this seek Christ for salvation, but we still experience a desert. This is not uncommon. The influence of sin and the world, they pull us in and they pull us down. More than a hundred years ago, in the late 1800s, missionaries brought the gospel to Uganda in East Africa. The gospel immediately fell on ears ready to hear, and many were saved. And as so often happens, many were threatened by this. And because of this, many of the new Christians were martyred for their new faith. But also, as so often happens, when people give their lives for the sake of Christ, 
more and more come to faith in Christ. Uganda experienced a miraculous movement to Christ. Churches were started across the land, and Christ was praised. But the next generation did not remember what it was like before the light of Christ entered the land. The way of Christ was neglected and soon forgotten. Witchcraft and even human sacrifice returned to the land. Drinking and adultery became common again. In the 1920s and 1930s, some Christians began to confess their sin to one another. And this came with a conviction to surrender their whole lives to God. To not hold anything back. And this began to catch on. Others began to confess sin, surrender their lives to Christ. And this meant letting go of things that held people in bondage. Witchcraft, adultery, alcohol. And soon revival broke out across East Africa. One involved in this movement toward God said this. He said, a God-given hunger for more holiness and Christ-likeness has come upon us in what is known as revival followed. Two observations I, I want to focus in on from this revival movement. I think that are helpful for us. And I think they help us see the beauty of what is described here in Isaiah 35. First, one writer about this revival noted this. He said, deadness within the church was rooted in a deadness within the Christian. In other words, it begins with you and me. So often we wait for someone else for things like this, for revival. But we need transformation first in our own hearts. This is where renewal takes place and begins to spread. Secondly, one man uh, by the name of Kefa Simpangi, I, and forgive me for not pronouncing a Ugandan name well. He became a pastor, and, and it was partly because he was touched by this revival that had continued on into the 1960s, about 30 years after it began. The question that was asked of him, and he began to ask of others, was this. Are you walking in the light? Are you being broken? For Kepha, these went hand in hand. To be walking in the light meant we needed to be broken and contrite before God. As we see the redeemed traveling down the way of the holiness, uh, the way of holiness, heading to Zion, we see gladness and we see joy because they have been given freedom from slavery to sin, and have been reunited with their creator. Kefa Simpangi's questions are worthy ones for us to ask of ourselves. Are you walking in the light? Are you being broken? Will you pray with me?
Father God, we thank you for this word from Isaiah. We thank you for his willingness to share this message, even knowing that it would fall on ears that are deaf and eyes that are blinded. And we too have our stubbornness. And so God, I pray that you would break through our walls of resistance, our stubbornness, that you would allow us to see sin as you see it and that we might learn to hate it. But Father, that we also know that you, you do not leave us wallowing in our own guilt, but that you came to save us, that you redeemed us from bondage to sin, that you delivered us from slavery to this corruption. So Father, we thank you for new life in Christ. God, I pray that for each of us, that we might look inward, that we might be willing to let go of those things that still control us, and that we might turn fully to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.